0: The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. John chapter 13. This morning we're looking at John 13, verses 21 through 30. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 21. Let's not give our attention to God speaking to us in his holy and inspired word. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. he immediately went out, and it was night. This concludes the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May God now be pleased to add his blessing to it. Well, One of the things I love about the Bible is that the Bible does not shy away from the fact that we live in a dark world. It doesn't sugarcoat that fact. It doesn't try to reject or ignore that fact. And there are a lot of dark times in the Bible as a result. We know of the golden calf incident. While Moses was still up on the mountain receiving the law, they were breaking it at the foot of the mountain. These are God's chosen ethnic people doing this. And then it gets worse. You look at the book of Judges. How terrible it gets in the book of Judges. How dark and horrible things got. And we know the story of David's terrible sin in committing adultery with Bathsheba and then hiring a hit out on her husband to cover that up. You can think of the abominable idolatries that Israel committed and how Solomon turned his heart away from the Lord in order to pursue the idols of his many, many wives and mistresses. And then there is the book of Lamentations, where women are so desperate that they end up eating their own children. There's a lot of dark times in the Bible that's reported to us. There's no sugarcoating it. And yet what we are looking at in today's passage is the darkest Of them all, or at least beginning the darkest of them all. This passage marks the beginning of the betrayal of our Lord Jesus, who is innocent, blameless, harmless, perfect, and is God Himself in human flesh. Back in John 9, Jesus said that He must do His works while it is still day because night is coming when He can no longer do His work. And what He meant. By night there is a figure of speech of when he would no longer do the signs of his public ministry, but that he would be betrayed, that his hour was coming. And right after Judas leaves to go betray Jesus, our text makes an interesting note. And it was night. What our text is saying is that now this night of which Jesus spoke back in John 9, has come. This marks the pivotal point in the overall narrative. It is now time for Jesus to enter into some of the darkest moments in human history. The betrayal and crucifixion of the Son of God. But not only does the Bible acknowledge that we live in a dark world and is not shy about reporting it, It also promises that the darkness will not prevail, that it will not ultimately triumph. John told us in chapter 1 that the light shines into the darkness, but the darkness cannot overcome it, cannot overtake it. God is going to use these deep, deep, dark times in order to bring great light. He uses the darkness of Judas's betrayal of his arrest and subsequent crucifixion in order to bring about the great light of our salvation. This is who our God is. Our God is not somebody who says, I can't do anything as long as there's darkness, just wait later on. Rather, he says, I'm even using the darkness to bring about. Great light. And this should encourage us in our dark moments that we have a God who uses darkness to bring about light, even though we may not understand it at the moment. And so what I want us to look at are three dark moments that are being used by God to bring about light. The first is Jesus' troubled soul, the second is the disciples' confusion, and the third is the betrayal's the betrayers' evil. So first dark moment that is being used by God to bring about light is Jesus' troubled soul. Verse 21, Jesus sa- it says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So after Jesus just got done speaking about the one who will betray him, which is Judas, and quoting Psalm 41.9, About this betrayal, he becomes troubled. And this word troubled here is a strong word in the Greek, referring to being in turmoil, deeply disturbed, in great distress, in anguish, shaken to the core. It's that feeling that we get within when we're facing something quite difficult, and distressing, that weighs down Upon us. It's like a crushing weight within. Well, this is the way that Jesus, as a true human, was feeling. But why is Jesus so distressed? Well, first and foremost, he knows that his hour has come. His hour to face the wrath of Almighty God and bear every single sin for every single one of his elect. This is a perfect response if you were to face the wrath of God. Being in great turmoil, the sinners tend to mock the wrath of God. They say, where's this judgment of which you speak? Or they deny that it's even coming. But Jesus, who's perfect and is facing God's wrath, not for any sin He has committed, but for the sin of His people has the proper response to facing the wrath of God. His soul is in turmoil. But secondly, in adding to that, being betrayed by a good friend, a close companion, is also a crushing blow to one's spirit. Psalm 55 describes how this betrayal feels. These are actually the words of Christ Himself through His Spirit in the prophet David in Psalm 55. This is Jesus speaking to His Spirit, where it says, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. This describes the anguish of Christ's soul in light of his betrayal by a close companion. Jesus shared everything with Judas by including him in this inner circle of 12 disciples, spent his life personally discipling him for three years, and even entrusted him with the money. And now he was going to be betrayed by his intimate friend. It is quite a crushing blow for Christ to have to deal with in His humanity. And I think that we often overlook this in light of His greater sufferings of the cross. And we have to understand from this. We learn two main things from this. First, Jesus was a true human. Jesus was a true man like us in every way. I think yeah, we can we can write that out in a doctoral statement, but I don't think we grasp this. God does not get troubled in spirit. Who could possibly trouble God? He laughs at his enemies, it says in Psalm two. God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, so why would he ever be troubled about something that he himself had in his decree? God is not contingent or dependent on his creation. And so he is not affected by it. However, even though Jesus is fully God, he is also a true and full man. He is affected by creation and his humanity. And so experiencing pain and emotions and trouble in a dark, sinful world is part of his true experience as a man. He was a man of sorrows. And so Jesus is truly able to sympathize with us in our difficulties and sorrows. The second thing we learn by implication here is that it's not sinful to have a troubled or distressed soul. The scriptures explicitly testify that Jesus was perfect in every way. And since he is perfect in every way, and yet has a troubled spirit, that means that it is not sin to be troubled within. Now, we are often troubled from a sinful worry, not trusting God. Our troubled spirit is mixed with a bunch of sin. We're never perfect. But having a troubled spirit in and of itself is not sinful. But when we do have a troubled spirit, we must do what the psalmist did and take it to God. Psalm 55 says, Cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. A lot of times I think we think, oh, I'm troubled. I'm having struggles. I need to deal with it myself before I can come before God. But it's quite the opposite. God says, take your burden and cast it on me. And I will sustain you. And this is even what Jesus did as he was going to the cross. We see this in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed to God before heading to the cross. But it would be Christ's dark moments and trouble of his soul and experiencing the wrath of God. This betra- Including the, the suffering of being betrayed. That would bring about the great light. Light for us. His troubled soul is light for us. The light of our salvation to the glory of God. A second dark moment that is being used by God to bring about light is the disciples' confusion. Beginning in verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Now, I don't think the ESV fully brings out the Greek here. It's better to say that the disciples were perplexed. They were at a loss, even dumbfounded. They were in a confused state of mind. Now, I want to return to that point in just a moment, but I want to bring out some other points of application here. First, this demonstrates the great level of deception with which Judas operated. The disciples did not say upon Jesus saying that, "Oh, yeah, it's Judas. We knew it all along. We're wondering." when Jesus was going to figure it out. Judas had them completely fooled. That Satan is a master disguiser. He sends wolves in sheep's clothing into the church, and he wraps himself as an angel of light. And it worked very well because none of the disciples were on to Judas at this point, even though they lived in close quarters with him. And so Peter motions to John, to, to see if he could find out from Jesus who the betrayer was. You see that in verses 23 through 25. Evidently, Peter was not in close proximity to Jesus at the dinner table, so he made some sort of motion to John that he interpreted as, asked Jesus who it was. Now, John describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is not to say that Jesus didn't love Jesus his other disciples. Rather, John chooses to identify himself in this manner. Why is that? Well, it seems to be a humble and modest action on John's part. You know, out of all the disciples, he's the one right next to Jesus resting on his bosom, which is a place of honor. And so John didn't say, I, John, was right next to Jesus. Yep, That was me. I was right next to him. He didn't say that. Or even the disciple who loves Jesus. But instead, John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loves. This is the way that John identifies himself throughout the whole book. John finds his identity not in being one of the twelve. You know, I'm, I'm special. One of the apostles. I spent three whole years with Jesus in a high position, or even in His love and works for Jesus, rather he finds his identity in being loved by Jesus. He says, this is who I am. This is what defines me. I am a disciple whom Jesus loves. And this is a good lesson for us. We too should find our identity, our value, who we are, what defines us in Jesus' love for us. Not our love for Him or what we do for Him. We are to love Him. We are to serve Him and do good works for Him. But we find our identity in that He loves us. That he, as Paul says, loved me and gave himself up for me. This is who I am. How much happier, how much peaceful would we be if we found our identity and rested our identity in this? We tend to rest our identity in all the works that we do, and and then when we fail, you say, I'm not doing good enough. Woe well, is me. But if we found our identity not in how we love Jesus, but how He loves us, how much better would it be for us? And it would actually help us then to increase in our love for Him. And we also read that John was laying in Jesus' bosom, chest area. So at certain special meals like this one here, they would recline at a, a very short dinner table they would all lay on their left side with their feet extended out from the table and eat with their right hand. And this is why John is up against uh, the, the bosom or chest area of Jesus, resting his head uh, on it and looks back up at Jesus to ask him a question. Now, it may seem very strange to us that two men are this close, but it would not be strange in their culture back in their day. But the, the main point is the confusion of the disciples. That's of Come back to here, which comes as a result of a dark moment. Yes, they are confused particularly over who it might be that would do this, but the reason they are even perplexed over who it is to begin with is because of what the issue is the The issue is that one of them is going to betray the Lord. Oh yeah, we can understand if one of those angry Jewish leaders would do it, but one of us. What with the inner circle, they are perplexed and even dumbfounded over a very dark and evil act that is about to occur. And to apply this to us, you know, many times in our life, it's not so much the pain or troubled spirit, but the confusion that is so burdensome during dark times. You see, unanswered questions that weigh heavily on us. Why did this happen? Why is this happening? When will things get better? Will they get better? How will they get better? Remember a prosecutor giving a news interview where he said that during his 16 years of experience as a prosecutor, the number one troubling thing that plagued the victims was the unanswered question of why. Okay, we caught the guy, but why did he do it? Why did he do that to my loved one? What was the motive? And so dark moments oftentimes produce great confusion and unanswered questions which may be the most difficult to face, and that's what the disciples are facing here. So what are we to do with these unanswered questions and confusion? Well, like the disciples we must commit these unanswered questions to the Lord. Notice that Jesus did not try to rebuke John for asking him their unanswered question. This is not to say that we sinfully raise our fist against God in the sense of, Lord, what are you doing? If you were wise like me, you would have done things differently according to my own will. But rather in the sense of trusting Christ with our concerns and confusion coming to Him, casting our burdens on Him, laying them at His feet, speaking to Him the way the psalmist speaks. Oh Lord, why? How long? The Lord is not going to speak directly to us, but He may give us an answer as we read His Word. Or He may give us an answer through His providence. Things become clear later. or The advice and counsel of others. Or that... Answer may be silence and simply to trust Him. To trust Him even though we may not understand yet. And this is the most difficult one. Not having answers, but simply trusting God despite not having the answer. But maybe it's God's purpose is that we not know everything, but we simply learn to trust Him. And we may not get an answer until later, like these disciples did with regards to. Judas, or we may have to wait until heaven before we get the answer. But then when we get to heaven, we may be so overfilled with joy that we may not even care anymore. The third dark moment that is being used by God to bring about light. So we have seen, first, Jesus' troubled soul. Second, the disciples' confusion. Third, the betrayer's evil beginning in verse 26. This is Jesus' response to John asking him who the betrayer is. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So here for the first time, Jesus identifies who the betrayer is. Now given that there's no response mentioned by the disciples and they still don't understand what's going on, nor did they detect anything when Judas leaves. Uh, We deduce that Jesus must have uh, only said this to John and the rest of the disciples didn't hear. Or even so, they still don't understand what's going on. And one of the reasons for that is because what Jesus did here is actually a sign of honor and friendship in their culture. Dipping a morsel, a piece of bread, in a bowl and then giving it to a guest is a sign of honor and friendship in their culture. And so Jesus is actually extending to Judas a sign of friendship and honor. It could be that Jesus was giving Judas every chance to repent, even though He knew that Judas was not going to. He is saying by this symbol, will you take my friendship and honor? It is certainly an act of kindness and goodness that Jesus was extending to His enemy, even knowing full well what he was going to do. Uh, There's no malice on Jesus' part. Jesus is even loving him, knowing full well what was about ready to happen. And this would explain why the other disciples didn't suspect anything. But Judas refuses and instead turns away from Jesus to follow Satan. Verse 27. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Of this phrase, Satan entered into him, is strong language. This doesn't mean that Judas was completely innocent, fully on Jesus' side, and then suddenly Satan overtook him, and now he's desiring something evil that he never desired or imagined before. That's not the case. Neither does it mean that Judas was neutral or ambivalent to the situation, but that Satan possessed him, and suddenly he wants to do this evil. Rather, as... John Gill says he's a particular Baptist to use the, the term anachronistically, a reformed Baptist from the 17th century I think he puts it well Satan filled his mind and stirred him up more eagerly to pursue with rigor his wicked design. So Satan worked in and through Judas's sin, exploiting his sin and pushing him further into it. It's like throwing gasoline on fire. If, if someone dumps gasoline on the ground, there's no fire. Nothing's going to happen. But if there's a flame there and you pour gasoline on it, it's going to blow up. Well, the flame of Judas' sin is already there. And Satan threw gasoline on it and inflamed him in his evil. This is how Satan works. He further inflames the sin in our heart. But Satan does not spook us. Hide under our bed like a boogeyman. He does not work by bringing weird or strange phenomenon like Hollywood or Halloween scary movies where it freaks us out. Rather, he works in a way that draws us draws us closer to him and to find pleasure in our sinful flesh. This may show up in greater temptation or stronger, or more frequent sinful desires and thoughts. Satan also loves to cause divisions and dissensions, especially. In the church, because a kingdom divided against itself, cannot stand. So, of course, the gates of hell try to prevail against the church. They won't, but it tries. It usually works through divisive people. Now, for unbelievers like Judas, there is no guard or protection against Satan. There's no spiritual immune system, if you will. But for believers, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within we have God almighty dwelling within he's greater than the one in this world we have all the grace power and spiritual resources from God to stand against the evil one to resist the devil but by his grace we must exert effort to do that however because of our remaining sin we will continue to struggle we will continue to wrestle with our sin and sometimes we resist our sin and the devil and other times we don't but in Judas's case, he followed Satan, but it was also in the plan of God. Look at the second half of verse 27. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Notice Jesus did not say, please don't do this. I, I, I beg you, it would be bad for me. It would ruin my plan. It would throw a wrench in my plan. Rather, Jesus gave Judas a command to do what he was going to do quickly. This is like the book of Job where God gives Satan permission to do what he was going to do to Job. God is not threatened by his greatest enemy, nor is his plan frustrated by evil. God works out his plan even using evil for good. He is in complete control and uses evil and darkness to bring about good purposes. You can argue that the cross was the most evil thing that ever happened to crucify the Son of God, and yet it brought about our salvation. But at the same time, you may not even be aware of it like these disciples, how God would be using darkness and evil for good. Verses 28-29 through Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag Jesus was telling him buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So this is the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it would make sense in their culture that he would go out and buy something for the feast. And it's also during this time that the authorities would be opening up the outer gates uh, to the temple for the poor, and blame, uh, blind and lame in order to uh, beg. That was part of this beast. And so say, oh yeah, maybe he's giving something to the poor. So that would make sense. But in reality, Jesus was, Judas was leaving to commit a very dark act. Verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So after G- Judas took this sign of friendship, he immediately leaves to do the exact opposite and betray him. And thus the night begins in the narrative. And it will remain night until the dawn of the morning of Jesus' resurrection when the women come early in the morning to see the empty tomb. But this is what happens sometimes when you love people. Sometimes you open up yourself to the possibility of rejection and betrayal. And this is what our Lord experienced here. And so he is sympathetic toward us. He can truly relate and relate on a much greater scale. But the reason that Jesus made himself vulnerable to rejection and betrayal was not ultimately for Judas, but for us. Christ was betrayed because we all first betrayed our God. We turn our backs on our God and Creator in that He is so good to us What did he fail to give Adam? He gave him a whole garden. He gave him everything that he could want. He gave him an extension of his own friendship. Creation is the most hospitable act you can ever think of. God doesn't need us. God doesn't need his creation. And yet God, out of pure generosity and love, created us so that we may enjoy him. And what did we do in our first father? We turned our back on him. We refused his love. We exchanged the glory of God for a lie and worshiped and served creation rather than the Creator. We are like Judas who have taken the kindness of God and turned our backs on him to live for ourselves in our sin. And we are often more concerned about how others have sinned against us than how we have sinned against God. We don't realize how serious of a sin it is to turn against God. It deserves facing torment forever. But Christ made Himself vulnerable by becoming a man, coming to earth to be a man of sorrows opening himself up to the rejection of his close friend, his own ethnic people, and of his enemies, the Jewish leaders. Even commanding him to go and do what he was going to do for the good of our soul. And ultimately, he faced the rejection of his father on the cross when he took the wrath of God that we deserve for all our sins. But the Father turned His face away from His Son so that His face would be made to shine brightly upon us. And so God used these deep, dark moments to bring about the light of His salvation upon us. If God could take this greatest darkness to bring about great light, then can we not trust Him in all of our dark moments? that He's working it out for light, Even though we may not understand, we may be in a state of confusion like the disciples and be troubled in our souls. We say with the psalmist, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And saves the crushed in spirit. Even though we may be in anguish. We may be in distress. We may be confused. Let us remember the truth that our God makes light out of darkness. And one day it will all be over. And we will forever bask in the light of His glorious face. Because His face is turned against us our Lord on the cross. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to bask in the light of these truths so that we may know your goodness and your love towards us. Let us know it deep within our hearts that we may grow in our love for you. Not to find our identity in our love for you. We are are weak and pathetic but in your great love for us, to bask in that over, causing us to be stronger and to walk more and more in holiness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbc wyoming.com